What is the only U.S. national park to bid for the Olympic Games? And can the color of gray hair be reversed naturally? I'm hoping so. <laughs> Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and learn if your gray hair can be reversed. <laughs> okay, I want to know the answer to that well, one, Well, of course you do. A study at Columbia University found that graying can temporarily be undone without hair dye. Really? Yep. You've known high stress or being scared can actually turn your hair gray? Yes, right. I mean, you can scare somebody to having gray hair. Maybe you could scare them back. Well, I, <laughs> that's not so far out. If you get rid of people that cause you stress, mm, your hair can really start reverting back. Get uh, rid of the people that cause you stress. Let me yeah! think about that for a minute. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> so researchers at Columbia analyzed strands of hair plucked from study participants who kept diaries of their stress levels. Mm -hmm. In some, participants' hair that had been gray returned to its original color really? near the follicle after periods of low stress. Okay. So the graying process is closely associated with psychological well-being and genetics, not surprisingly. No. You're not going to get a full head of gray hair back to its original color. <sighs> Darn. So don't go knocking off your husband or wife, Bob. Oh, uh, okay. But uh, you can change back. You uh, can change things back sometimes. Sometimes, in the earliest stages, particularly. I would assume that's probably true if a person's younger, too, and they just may be prematurely gray over something. Well, that could be. You know, okay. you remember we had a time when I was losing my hair, and it was due to stress and yeah. a job, and I changed the yeah. job, and I, I lost the stress. So. See, Bob, this is before you, with you. Before you, with oh, you. <laughs> wow. All right. Thanks a lot. Okay, let's switch to another subject, okay? Okay. The Olympic Games recently ended, and, uh, you know, you and I have shared some trivia on the Olympics, and that was fun. I found another fact. Did you know that a U.S. national park once was bidding for the Olympic Games? Who? Which one? It was the Winter Games. Okay. So, are we talking maybe in Idaho? No. That would make sense. Uh, is it in California? Yes, it is. Is it uh, Yosemite? It's Yosemite. You're right. The U.S. National Park that bid for the Olympics was Yosemite. Now, it's hard to imagine a massive event such as the Olympic Games ever taking place in a national park, right? Yes, it is. Because I think we think of them as sacred spaces, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, that would kind of <laughs> kill right? that. Oh, right? my God. But Yosemite actually did bid to host the Winter Olympics back in 1932, and it was part of an effort to lure winter visitors to what had only been a summertime destination at, uh -huh. up to that point. The construction of what is now Highway 140 in mm -hmm. 1926, that was the turning point for Yosemite's transformation into a winter resort, giving a motorist year-round access to the park. Basically, uh, I think the concessionaires, the people that run the tourist attractions, you know, mm -hmm. had a lot more sway back in the day, apparently. Well, because uh, Don Treseder, who was the concessionaire, after he visited the St. Moritz Games in Switzerland, 
He bid for the Olympics. He pushed for the 1932 Winter Olympic Games to be hosted in Yosemite, and apparently nobody from the government said no. Okay. So they were in the run. Ultimately, his bid was unsuccessful, and the Games went to Lake Placid, New York. Flat cities like Duluth and Minneapolis, they were also in contention to host the Winter Olympics. Oh, sure. Because there was no downhill skiing in the Winter Olympics. It was yeah. all skating and things like that oh, back then. Oh, okay. Anyway, today, Yosemite remains the only U.S. national park to bid for the Olympics. But they did host the ice skating tryouts for the 1932 oh, Games they? on their rink. And funny, back in 1932, Lake Placid got the Games. Well... Lake Placid had one of its warmest winters on record. Well, what did they do then? I don't know, but no no downhill skiing. So that was in 32. 1932. The U.S. National Park that bid for the Olympics was Yosemite. Okay. So where can you go, Bob, if you want to swim with pigs? If I want to swim with pigs... Can I ask you a question? Sure. Why would anyone want to swim with it's pigs? It's a big, and people love it. And what? It's, yes. We're not keeping up with the tourist destinations, Bob. Okay. Pig Beach, as it's known, <laughs> is, is located in the Bahamas on an uninhabited island located in Exuma. And uh, there's nothing on this island but pigs. Nobody's quite sure how they first got there, but they procreated at great numbers, and they love to swim in the ocean. Pigs swimming in the ocean. Yeah, yeah. There's pig. You got to Google it. You see them out there snorting around, Gosh. having a great game. Where do we get these things? <laughs> <laughs> well, that I got on Google. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is people pay a lot of money to just go there. You can't stay there, but you got to either fly in or take a boat in, and the pigs don't seem to mind you swimming alongside of them or going scuba diving. And where is this again? In the Bahamas. In the Bahamas, swimming with pigs. Yeah, that's the truth, and a lot of people go there. So not when pigs fly, it's when When pigs pigs swim. swim. Okay. I didn't even know they could swim in the ocean. I didn't know pigs could swim. It's a thing. It's a thing. (laughs) Okay, Marsha, I have an interesting question about music. In 1966, the letter S dominated the pop music charts. Seven of the top 25 records that year began with an S. Now, my question is, can you name any Any of them? them. Now, I'll tell you some of the the artists. Tommy Rowe, The Happenings. Sheila. Bobby Hebb, The Love and Spoonful, and Donovan. Let's see. What was that Donovan? Shoop. Shoop. Sunshine Superman, Marsha. Sunshine Okay, that was one. Now <laughs> I let's... got Sheila, too, See, right? there's no Sheila here. All these songs were on the charts in 1966, and they started with S. Summer in the City by The Love and Spoonful. Okay. Sunny by Bobby Head. Oh, I should See You in September by oh, The Happenings. I should know that. And the other four are Sweet Pea by Tommy Rowe, Sunshine Superman by Donovan, Summertime by Billy Stewart, and yeah. Sunny Afternoon by The Kinks. Summertime. Okay, let's move on. And the living is easy. Where does that come from, Bob? What show? What Broadway show? Now let's move on. <laughs> okay, that's, that's, I know, that's Porgy and Bess, right? That's, that's correct. Yeah. Okay, ding, ding. How about this? A French aristocrat named Reichenberg okay. was a successful spy during the French Revolution. Okay. He could get behind the lines and deliver secret messages to allies without being caught and executed. Want to guess, Bob, how he got behind the lines without being captured? Hmm, what was his superpower? Yes, exactly. His secret power. Yeah. Okay, I will suggest that he dressed up as a beautiful lady and uh, charmed the soldiers into submission. 
No? Well, that's a good guess. Yeah, I, I like it myself. And, well, you are completely wrong. Usually an attractive woman carried him over as a baby. What? <laughs> a baby? Ruschenberg was less than two feet tall, and he was taken in baby blankets, bonnets, and frilly infant wear and carried across enemy lines by a woman fellow spy he knew posing as a nurse <laughs> and he kept fine cigars in his little baby pants to celebrate after completing his very stressful and hair-raising missions what so a little two foot tall guy who looked like a less little baby less than two feet yeah less than two feet tall looked like a little baby would smoke cigars with his buddies to celebrate the fact that he went over enemy lines okay well you that is a that's a unique story mark you can't make this stuff up no, no you can't Hey, you know, you had a thing about Attila the Hun, our last show. How ah. Attila the Hun died uh, of a uh, nosebleed, right? Very yeah. good. That's Then correct. you had some fun Hun facts, you said. Uh-huh. So I've got one for you, too. Okay. Even though the Huns were able to scale the Great Wall of China, why were they not able to effectively conquer China? Too big? Too many people? Too hilly? Too any of those? No, none of those. Uh their greatest military advantage was a disadvantage. Horses! That's right! That's right. Their horses couldn't get over the they wall. They depended heavily on cavalry. They found many places along the wall separating China and Mongolia where they could scale the structure with ladders. Yeah. But they had to leave their horses behind. And that was their big thing. And without horses, the Huns were not effective conquerors in China. I'll be darned. Yeah. Yeah, so it worked, though, the wall. Yeah, it kept them out. It kept the horses out. And the Huns. Yeah, yeah and the yeah. Huns. You don't want a Hun on horseback or walking towards you. <laughs> All right, ponder this, Bob. Okay. What do we mean when we say, I'm head over heels in love? That means you're, you've lost control. You're jumping for joy. You're head over heels. But did you ever consider the words in that phrase? Head over heels? Yeah. Well, that means I've done a handspring. Think about it. Having your head over your heels... Oh, that's normal. ...is, in fact, the <laughs> normal standing position. So if you're head over heels in yeah. love, it's no big deal. It's just standard fare. Oh, oh, but uh, say what? <laughs> that's right. You can blame American frontiersman Davy Crockett for screwing up the phrase... When the expression first appeared around 1350, okay. it was heels over head in love. But oh. in his 1834 autobiography, Crockett wrote, I soon found myself head over heels in love with this girl. Isn't that funny? And none of us think of that. And so it has been ever since. And you're right. Nobody thinks, well, wait, that's the normal position. I'm head over heels in love. And that's just like standing here normally. Oh, that is amazing. Isn't that? That's just a fun thing. You know, you're astounded personally that yeah. you didn't ever think of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. All right, Marsha, how did the bloodhound get Ooh, its name? We got name? dog questions. Dog I got questions? one for you right after this. Dog too. questions today. Okay. How did the bloodhound get its name? Well, I assume that it smells blood from a great distance because they have these, as most dogs do, these incredible noses. But the bloodhound is even superior to most dog noses, and they can smell it, so they call him a bloodhound. So many words and not even accurate. To... <laughs> not even close. <laughs> I, I could have kept babbling. But you could I, go on I, and I could, on. I could see from your face I was going down the toilet. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, most of us would think it comes from the dog's ability to sniff trails of blood. but Little simpletons like me. <laughs> no, no. You know, I thought bloodhound had to do with crime and mm -hmm. how they sniffed out murders or something. Mm -hmm. But... The name 
refers to something different. It refers to its pedigree. A bloodhound was the first pedigreed or pure blood breed of a dog. Oh, the blood breed yeah. of the dog. Yeah, that's what it It has nothing to do with smelling no, blood. No, it was oh, just for... like, they call that's the bloodhound because it was, oh, this is the first the, pure blood bred the, dog. Oh, be darned. Isn't well, that interesting? Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that. No, I wouldn't have either. Speaking of dogs, mm-hmm. did you ever wonder why dogs circle around so much before lying down? You know, they go do that little circle walk and yeah. they, they kind of laugh and go, what are they doing? I always thought they were preparing the ground. They would walk in the wild. They would uh, mat down the grass. Oh, for God's sakes. What's wrong? That's the answer. Oh, that's, well, of course. <laughs> of course that's the answer. I always thought it looks like they're trying to make themselves comfortable, yeah, which actually yeah, they are. Yeah. The fact is dogs have been doing this since their origins in the wild. And uh, like their ancestors and cousins, such as wolves, coyotes, foxes, domesticated dogs still turn circles to beat down a bed of tall grass. Hmm. Isn't that amazing how that... Oh, yeah. That, that you know... They pass that down. They're sitting there on your plush velvet couch and matting down the Walking around grass. it like, yeah. got to get this thing down here yeah, so it feels that? good. Yeah, it's just funny. It, okay, uh, I've got a sports question. We oftentimes think of boxers as, well, you know, boxers get hit in the head. And they, a lot of them, unfortunately, end up having mental problems. You absolutely. Know? But what U.S. heavyweight boxing champion actually lectured on Shakespeare at Yale University. Is this a well-known boxer? For his time, yes. Before my time. But you've probably heard the name. It wasn't Marciano. No. It wasn't... uh, It wasn't Muhammad Ali, no. I don't know. Gene Tunney. Gene Tunney. He is considered to have been one of the most intelligent boxers in history. Hmm. So he actually lectured on Shakespeare at Yale University. Well... And one more question, a geography question, Marcia. Uh, All right, imagine this. Imagine if you will. Imagine if you will a country (laughs) so big (laughs) that the sun rises and sets at the same time. Well, that doesn't make any sense to me. So large, the sun rises and sets at the same time. More time zones than any other country. That's my clue. It's not Russia. Yes, it is. Okay. It's the uh, the former Soviet Union. It reaches westward into Europe and eastward to the edges yeah, of Eastern sure. Asia. So it comes up and goes down at the same yeah. time. It's the only country where the sun rises and sets at the same time, according to a book called Would You Believe? Wow. And I do. <laughs> I believe. I believe. Okay. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marshall. Smith. We'll be back in just a moment. Okay, after a bourbon, we're back. No, I didn't have a bourbon. I did not. Maybe later with the pizza. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, so we're back again with the off-ramp, Bob and Marcia Smith. What famous American painting used the Rhine River in Germany in its scenery, even though the river depicted was supposed to be an American one? Oh, really? Yeah, famous painting. Famous painting. Thinking of river paintings, you have five seconds. <laughs> Uh, an American artist yes. painting a landscape used the Rhine River as his muse. <laughs> his muse, no. Uh, the muse was an historical event. Yeah. Oh, okay, tell me. Okay, it's American painter Emanuel Lutz, who was actually born in Germany. He did the painting Washington Crossing the Delaware in Dusseldorf, and he used the Rhine River as the model for the river in the painting. Okay. I, I <laughs> never heard of that artist. Isn't That's this fan. a legitimate question, Marsha? But I don't. I ask you a question, You Marcia. asked me who the artist is. I did you not. You didn't ask me what I the painting not. was. I did not. I said 
What Wait. famous American painting used the oh, Rhine River? Painter. No. Oh. <laughs> Are we over our anger now? Yes. We must listen to the questions when I ask them. Hey. What? Mick President Smarty Pants. <laughs> As young men, we had two presidents who were actually property of their masters at one time. Really? Yeah. Who were they? Time to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to... Yeah, I, see, you're going to ask me... Get to my qu- phone and get on Wikipedia. <laughs> okay, the question again is that there were two presidents who were once... Property of their masters. So they were indentured servants is what they were. Correct. Indentured, not meaning I'm wearing dentures. Indentured meaning oh, I'm working for someone. Brother. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. I'll say, I'll think of two people I knew were born kind of in poverty. Um, Andrew Jackson? You got the first name right. Andrew well, a president named Andrew? Uh-huh. Andrew. Who's another Andrew? Mm-hmm. Andrew Carnegie. No, mm-hmm. that's not a president. Andrew mm-hmm. Andrew Smith. That's my yeah. middle name. Uh, <laughs> let me see. I don't know who. You're sweating, Bob. Okay. Andrew Johnson. Bob, it's your middle name, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Millard Fillmore. Okay. The indentured servant was a different kind of slave bound by a contract to work for a master who, in effect, owned them mm-hmm. for the term of the contract, like your ancestor. I bet Andrew Johnson was indentured to a tailor. How do you know that? Well, I knew he worked for a tailor and he had fancy clothes all his life. Yes. Yes, that's true. Wow. Okay, good. Uh, that's all I knew was that yes. he, and in fact, he apparently made some of his suits. That's what I His knew. own suit? Yeah, as, a, as wow. an adult. Yes. Johnson was indentured to a tailor, okay. as you guessed correctly, and he ran away. Hmm. The tailor took out an ad in the, the Raleigh, North Carolina Gazette, offering a $10 reward Ooh. for the return of the future president. There were no takers. And <laughs> Fillmore was indentured to a cloth maker, and he served his master and finally bought his own freedom for $30. Wow. And it says here, apparently Fillmore was worth $20 more than Andy Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because I always think of indentured servants. Like with my experience, it was a person who came over on the Mayflower, yeah. an indentured servant. Yeah. And that people would pay for these very expensive journeys with that. I will work for you for five years, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of a thing. I never think of people who were living here who weren't slaves who were in that kind of a situation for a regular business person or yeah, as an apprentice yeah, or something. Yeah, instead of hiring them, they just said, uh, work for me and uh, you'll get food and clothing yeah, and your... I'll let you go in five years. And you'll learn about my trade. Yeah. All right, Marsha, literature question for you. Oh, yay. When he had Hamlet tell Ophelia, get thee to a nunnery. Ah. Shakespeare didn't mean go to a convent. What did he mean? Ah, uh, he didn't mean a convent? No, you uh, thought he did, didn't you? I did. All these years. What does he mean? Just get uh, get to a place where there are no boys? What well, that uh, that word meant something different back in those oh, days. Oh, really? What did it mean, Bob? Well, uh, in those days, a nunnery was Elizabethan slang for a brothel. No. Yes. You mean it's the total reverse? Total opposite. So it's a real insult. So when Hamlet rejects Ophelia's advances saying, get thee to a nunnery, he's being much more brutal than today's audience. Oh, Oh, realize. my God. Okay. <laughs> Bobby. Yes. Why do fireflies light up? Why do they light up? Uh-huh. I would assume that is like a mating call. You're right. Uh, they do it to attract a mate. But fireflies flash their lights to each other in precise and split-second codes. Really? Yeah. The male black firefly of North America flashes every 5.7 seconds when flying. 
And when he gets within 10 to 15 feet of a lady mm. <laughs> who's sitting around on the ground, she flashes back exactly 2.1 seconds after he does. Really? That's the code. And that's their little mating dance. Wow. Let's sit in the backyard tonight with a stopwatch and let's. Uh, I, I, this I got to see. Two I'll look at the one. ground, you look in the air. <laughs> Jeez. And you call out, I got one. 2.1 seconds? 2.1? Yeah, 2.1 seconds she responds after he flashes. So that's how he knows, okay, I'm okay, going in for I'm... a landing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Jeez. Well, that makes that uh, remark sound a little more suggestive than I intended, and I apologize. Oh, yeah. This is a podcast, Bob. It's not PBS. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Another word, origin, or actually definition. There is a difference between a postal card and a postcard. Did you know that? No. Well, what is the difference, Marcia? Well, I just told you. No. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) I guess you did. Okay. Sorry. Let me guess. Uh, Difference between a postcard and a Postal card. Is one stamped and one is metered? No, that's not the answer, but you're close. A postal card has a stamp printed on it. A postcard has no stamp and most likely is one that has a pictorial scene printed on one side. And it's one you pick up and you have to put a stamp on it or it has to run through a stamping machine. All right. If not purposely killed, is there any animal that is immortal? What did you mean? If not purposely killed by, you know, something like a predator or a human being, is there any animal that is immortal? In other words, doesn't die of old age. Unless something kills it, is there any animal that always remains alive? That's pretty much what I said, but if you understand that I have to understand this better. And uh, frankly, I can't imagine the answer is yes. So... Tell me I'm wrong. You're wrong. Okay. And this is one we've had numerous questions about, the jellyfish, specifically the Toratopsis dornii. Hmm. This particular jellyfish, if it faces some kind of stress like uh, starvation or injury, it can revert back to being a tiny blob of tissue and start all over again. Really? If it has stress. It's like a frog becoming a tadpole again. So it metamorphosizes into something else. Yeah. It has various stages of metamorphosis, but the tiny blob is uh, way back towards the beginning. So there you go. Immortal. Immortal. (laughs) How how many generations can this go on? Forever? That's the definition of immortal. I'm going to have to hit Wikipedia on this one. That is where I got it. That's uh, uh, that's. Very unique. Think about that tonight. I will think about that tonight. All right, you think about this tonight. (laughs) Where does the term leathernecks come from? Now, that's what we use to describe Marines. Marines. Semperfine. Oh, here we go. Uh, Okay, well. Where did the term leathernecks come from? I knew once. That doesn't count, Marsha. Okay. Did it have something to do with the helmet or hat? It did, and yes. It, uh, did it have a, a leather lap on it that hung over his neck? Well, let me just give you the answer I have here, and then you can picture it in your mind, okay? <laughs> okay. It has nothing to do with sunburn or you know stiff military bearing, but the first persons called leathernecks were members of the light infantry. This was the elite of George Washington's army. Oh, really? Yeah. They wore dashing leather helmets with horsehair crests, and they were called leathernecks because of the way the helmets hung on their head. Well, then I was right. No, you weren't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you were. That was right. You were right. You figured it out. Uh, How much weight can an average head of human hair support? 
How much weight can an average yeah. head of human hair yeah. support? I don't understand that question. Like a single human hair can support approximately three ounces of weight. Oh, I mean, if something's tied to it. How strong is it? Yeah. How can it? Su- how much can it support? Like how much can it lift or hold? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. So if all of the human hairs were used essentially as tiny little ropes or on, strings. On your head. Yeah. How much could you hold? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. You're having a hard time visualizing. I'm visualizing. I'm trying to visualize what that would look like. Uh, I don't know. How many? Two elephants. What? Twelve tons. The I hair- can't believe that. No, I know. Well, I, I, in fact, I spent way too long on this answer because it that's what I said. When the average single hair can support approximately three ounces, how can that be that it's 12 tons? Well... You have to multiply that by the number of hairs on a head. Which is an average 100,000 hairs. Wow. And so it comes out to, you know, the weight of two elephants. So let me summarize that, Marcia. Interesting answer, but totally impractical. (laughs) I can't use that information. Here, just shave off my hair and just uh, let's go pick up some elephants down there and prove my point. Oh, dear. Okay, I've got another question, and it goes back to... Early American history, okay? Why did the American shipbuilding industry get its start in 1631? What was the reason we started building ships on this continent? In what year? 1631. Now, here's a clue. Think about current industry or industry of the 20th century and why things moved to another place. Why production moved to another place. Well, yeah, place. for trade. Why? For trade. No. No. For to, uh, to get the pilgrims back to where they wanted to go? No. Cheap labor, cheap materials. Let's build it offshore. The British found that they could oh. build a ship in America and send it back to England cheaper than they could build it in England at the time. Oh, you're kidding. No, it's true. And it was due to the lumber being cheap and, of course, the labor being cheap compared to people in England. Yeah, shipyards started up in Boston and other Massachusetts ports, and the British began building their ships here in the New World where there was a wealth of inexpensive timber. Here we had forests, huge forests, virgin forests. In fact, an American-built ship was only half as expensive as one built in England in 1631. That's amazing. They started building them here because the labor was cheaper. Yeah, and and so were the materials. Yeah. So one of the first ships built at Boston was a 30-ton sloop built for Governor John Winthrop called Blessing of the Bay. That was launched in 1631. And that's the reason. Cheap labor, cheap materials, let's build it offshore. Not a new concept at all. Huh. I'll be darned. I'm going to wrap up my material with a prediction. You tell me when it happened, okay? Okay. Machinery will perform all work. Automata will direct them. The only tasks of the human race will be to make love, study, and be happy. When was that prediction? (laughs) When was that prediction? What year? Oh, my gosh. Was it? The The only things human beings will have to do is make love, study, and be happy. 1893. It was in 1853. Okay. It was a publication called the United States Review. They predicted by 1900 that wow. would happen. Wow. That machinery would perform all the work, and the only thing a human being would have to do is make love, study, and be happy. And they were foreseeing that before the Civil War, that prediction was. That's amazing. All right. Well, it's summertime, and I'm going to end up with a quote from Van Morrison. Smell the sea and feel the sky. Let your soul and spirit fly. 
That sounds great. Let's go to the beach. Okay, and uh, we just want to remind you, if you'd like to contribute to The Off-Ramp, we'd love to take your question, and you can do that by going to our website. Theofframp.show. And go to? Contact us. And you can leave your information, your name, and uh, the answer to the question. And we'd like to know where you're at, too. So thanks for listening. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we return with more trivia here on The The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.